laying in bed day after day, endlessly confined to the room with the horribly flamboyant yellow wallpaper. The woman sighs, fatigued. If a physician of high standing and one's own husband, she thinks to herself, assures friends and relatives that there's really nothing the matter with one but temporary nervous depression, a slight hysterical tendency that will be cured by bed rest, what's one to do? Too tired to escape her endless drowning thoughts, her eyes dart over the haunting pattern in the smoldering yellow walls of the room, searching. Confined to our homes for the last year in an effort to fight COVID-19, most of us can relate to the toils of the protagonist in Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper. Working and living in the same space day after day has been stifling. Like the changed humans in Plato's cave, it's been easy to believe shadows are all that's left of the life we used to live. But unlike the misdiagnosis of hysteria in Perkin Gilman's groundbreaking 19th century story, or later examples such as the humiliation of soldiers suffering from post-traumatic stress in the First World War, the contemporary medical community recognizes that mental well-being is just as important as physical health. I'm Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast brought to you by the Pictet Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. If you like our episodes, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Why have some people thrived while others struggled during the pandemic? How do containment strategies like repetitive lockdowns and physical distancing affect the mind? And will this historic event cause long-term trauma for society at large and future generations? As mental health cases reach all-time records worldwide, today we discuss pandemic trauma. Joining us are Melissa Monte, mindset mentor and host of the popular podcast Mind Love, ranked number one on Forbes podcast for your life and career, Professor Andrea Danese, clinical scientist expert in childhood trauma and trauma-related psychopathology at King's College Research Facilities, and Sarah Sheikh, head of diversity and inclusion at Big Asset Management. This discussion is moderated by Isabel von Ribbentrop, Global Head of Branding, Advertising, and Sponsoring at the Pictet Group. Thank you very much for joining us to all three of you. To start off the conversation just briefly, I'd like to ask you, why are we all seeing an all-time record of mental health cases worldwide? Was it simply because we had time to pay more attention to ourselves or has this pandemic as opposed to other historical events been more damaging to the mind? I think, Melissa, it would be great if you could start to give us a brief answer on that. Thank you. I think that the reasons that this is happening, you can't name just one because there's. it really depends on the person, what their particular vice is. And so I've been seeing a difference between who came out of this thriving, like this stillness was good for them versus who came out of this suffering from more mental health issues and why. And for me, what I'm seeing is those people that handled it and came out thriving, they had the tools, they had a set of 
things that they already were able to do when they were going through crisis or when they were going through hard times. Maybe they had dived into self-development a little bit. Maybe they were used to spending time alone. And that compared to the people that don't have that, you see it also affecting marginalized communities more because they have been surviving even before this. And so without those tools, it's really difficult to cope when suddenly all of your usual distractions have been stripped from you. Beforehand, I think of my 20s. My 20s, I was really distracting myself from my own issues. And uh, I would go to bars or I would go hang out with friends. And whether they were positive or negative vices, it was just different ways that I could distract myself from what I was feeling inside. And all of that got stripped away from people. So they weren't allowed to go see their friends anymore. They weren't allowed to have physical contact anymore. They started to form beliefs about themselves and the world that it's dangerous to be outside even, uh, to get fresh air, to get sunlight. So I think it really depends on the individual, but we each have our own weak points. And I think this pandemic came at us from all different angles. And regardless of what your weak point was, it was poking it a little bit. And so it just depended on if you had the strength or the, the tools and the accessibility to find a new way to cope, a healthier way to cope with, which unfortunately not all of us have. Yeah, thank you. Sarah, from your view? I think I agree with Melissa. I think the pandemic really brought to light issues for people that they might not have acknowledged earlier. So they were very acute and it brought it to the table. And I think also just in the news, you're reading so much about it. It's communicated about. So it allows that conversation to happen that maybe before wasn't allowed to happen as openly. So I think it's a combination of the two that's really brought it to light. Andrea, may we get your view as well on that? We were expecting, you know, a great increase. You know, it was the perfect storm, wasn't it? We had lots of stresses, including, of course, the the threat given the um, the virus. We had uh, limitation in um, social interaction that is so important, right? At the same time, we had a reduction in the support structure that is usually in place to provide safety and comfort. So, for example, schools and uh, gyms were closed. So we were expecting all this and this in the context of the material needs that were overshadowing in many ways the mental health. But the epidemiological data so far is really mixed and I think reflects for young people what Melissa and Zara has said for adults as well. So we had a very mixed picture where uh, most likely some young people have been deeply affected by the pandemic and others for a number of reasons that perhaps we can discuss later might actually have thrived through it. Let's just take a step back and talk about a little bit about mental health itself. Melissa, to you. So your podcast has been ranked the number one mental health podcast in over 27 countries. And um, for you, what is mental health? Why is it important? And what drew you as a person, actually, what drew you towards it? What drew me towards it was my own survival. I went through a number of traumatic events when I was in my teens. And beforehand, I hadn't gone through anything at all. So I was completely ill-equipped to deal with those types of things. I, I dealt with sexual assault, the loss of my father, a loss of a close friend to suicide. And so for me, I numbed it all away. I didn't feel it. I thought that was what strength really meant was to just put on a happy face and get through it. What I didn't realize is that in doing that, without that belief system that I no longer had the belief that the world was on my side. It was just things could happen. So why was I even trying anymore? 
And through the numbing, I ended up self-sabotaging a lot. And it was a combination of the world coming at me and then me making terrible decisions. And it wasn't until I decided to look at what I was going through and actually feel the things and go through and process what had happened to me that I started to feel better, that I started to make better decisions and actually feel like I'm going upward in my life. So through that, I ended up being the one that my friends would come to. I was constantly sharing this stuff. It became a passion of mine because I felt that as though it saved my life. And I realized I needed to share this message even more. So I decided to start a podcast. I was trying to find something that gave me purpose in my life. And that was also part of my healing. Why do you think it was taboo for such a long time? I mean, I remember we would never speak about it when we were younger. Do you think it was this pandemic also had the positive that it came up through this, that people start talking about that more? I do. I also think we were on a trend towards being able to talk about more of these things. And I think that kind of came from the Internet. Suddenly we're sharing things. And if you look at the trends of how people became successful on the Internet, it wasn't that long ago where it was just showing their shiny, perfect lives. And people got over that. And now what's shining through more is authenticity and vulnerability. And so even Brene Brown wrote a book on vulnerability. So we were already getting there. But we were getting there with a segment of people. There were still plenty of people that were burdened or, or they thought that strength was putting on that happy face and not talking about those things. But when we get to a point where we're all dealing with something, it becomes a little bit harder to ignore. And this pandemic hit us all in individual ways. Andrea, so as an expert clinical scientist at King's College, have you found people have been reluctant to look for help during the pandemic? Or do you have a feeling they are actually are seeking more for help? I definitely agree with Melissa that we are on a good trajectory, but there is more work that needs to be done in many ways. The pandemic was quite unique. One of our biggest concerns was that overshadowing of mental health problems by material and physical health concerns. Stigma is there. Um, has been there for a long time. It might be improving now, but it's still there. And so it's important, I think, that we talk about mental health in a way that doesn't draw artificial lines, if you like, between what is normal and what is abnormal behavior, as we have done a lot in the past, and instead really focus on mental health as a universal experience um, that we all have and we all share in, in some ways or another. Even focusing on, on things that literally we all have all the times, like emotions. We all are anxious, sad, angry, and we have to cope with those emotions. And I think there is much to be learned from each other on what works and what doesn't. And, and Sarah, for you, so from corporate environments, in our view, they always took a long time to embrace mental health. And from your view, are companies responsible for their employers' mental health? And if so... Do the creation of human resources and diversity and inclusion initiatives, do they help here as well? Do they help their employees? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think it is the employer's responsibility to provide for their employees. I think the pandemic has definitely, as Andrea and Melissa said, you know, it's reduced that stigma. So people are feeling more open to talk. But historically, I think very much employees have maybe felt that they couldn't speak because it's seen as a sign of weakness if you say you're stressed, if you're having mental ill health issues. And I think it is talks like today, it is mental health awareness training, it's running programs like that in an organization to just facilitate the conversation. I think the minute you can start having a discussion like today, you're enabling people to then 
come forward and actually share their concerns and what's impacting them. And then as an employer, we can help them more. So absolutely, I think it is the responsibility of the firms to give people the platform to be able to raise their issues. There's something in Hamlet's soul which seems to be ruled by melancholy. Describing the darkness in arguably one of his most complex characters, Shakespeare makes reference to an illness of the mind. Melancholy, which means black bile in Greek, is a disease that appears again and again in ancient, medieval, and pre-modern European medical texts, referring to an affliction of the mind characterized by depressive moods, bodily complaints, and sometimes hallucinations and delusions. Today, many call it clinical depression. And while some of the recorded remedies from Shakespeare's time, like bloodletting or tying a petrified toad's corpse to the patient's stomach, might seem crazy to us now, others, like exercise and good diet, sound familiar. If we've piqued your interest, have a look at Robert Burden's 17th century The Anatomy of Melancholy, the world's first and most comprehensive psychiatric encyclopedia. And Melissa, from your view, so you always hear that not everyone has actually equally been affected by the pandemic. And some people have been deeply negatively affected and why others seem to have thrived over the past year in a way. Um, Why do you think this is so? Do you think their workplace was simply better equipped to provide support, as we also heard from Sarah? Or do you think it was something else? For me, what I'm seeing, at least from the people who reach out to me, It's the people that already had a solid foundation of how to cope with negative things in their life that were able to pull from those when this happened, rather than feeling like everything was pulled from them. Whereas other people, they're in this waiting game. They're in limbo. It's two weeks to slow the curve. And then it just kept getting extended over and over again. So they're sitting here in limbo, not knowing what to do. They're at home. Their gym's been taken away. They're not going outside. They're viewing people as dangerous. They're not having hugs. And they're just consuming. And it's proven that the more time we spend online, the less happy that we are. And it reminds me of an Alan Watts quote that says, the secret of life is to be completely immersed in what you're doing right here, right now. And what we're doing as a society is we're spending so much time in our heads instead of in our bodies. And when we're stuck at home, we're even less in our bodies and we're more in our heads. And we're wondering why we're having so many mental imbalances like depression and anxiety. And so sometimes it just takes going out there and being in the world and getting involved with your hands. And not a lot of people understand that they don't have that foundation. And so I think the trick is to give more people a foundation. And that would be offering mental health issues in schools and and in employment programs, because a lot of people won't seek it out themselves. Yeah, no way, because you have the feeling that so many people, they're just stuck at right now in a constant state of panic and they don't want to leave their house anymore. And the question is, of course, what are the repercussions of these beliefs and, and our mental state and, and generally on the society at large? I mean, this is this is, of course, also a question. Where does it bring us in the next years? Yeah, this is something I've been concerned with. I just had a baby and, you know, I can't help but think what would it have been like if he was born last year and his first interactions with the world is people's face covered up where he's unable to get that the emotional information that babies read on people's faces that's a huge part of the way that they communicate what about toddlers i saw this video that went viral about this 
little girl that couldn't even talk yet and she goes over to sprinkle her head and pumps it like a hand sanitizer and that's her version of play and in one hand it's funny on the other hand it's really sad this is something that we all went through and in a way we're all kind of part of this big experiment that we're going to be seeing the repercussions of over the years but i don't think that any one of us can accurately predict what that's going to look like yeah no absolutely i have the same my little daughter's first word is hand sanitizer i mean you would have never thought that i mean how could children even read the lips anymore with these masks because that's also how they learn speaking this is another thing but that brings me more maybe to your area andrea to trauma You've published many articles on the risk factors of trauma exposure and the measurements of childhood traumas and its long-term effects on later health. Where does your traumatology start? Was it something personal or just something in medical school that you were drawn into? Yes, in many ways it was personal. So I guess the context, I take you back to the 90s. I was living in Italy and we experienced a large wave, you might remember, of uh, political and economical migration from Eastern Europe to Italy, largely resulting from the Yugoslav wars and crisis in Albania. So there were thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of young people who arrived in Italy full of good hope and little more, really. And as an accompanied minors, these young people were uh, put in children's homes. And at the time, as a young man, you could choose between doing military service and social service. And I chose to do um, social service and I served for about a year and a half in uh, one of these children's homes and uh, working alongside these young people. And meeting them really was a turning point. So I really became passionate, as you say, to understand not only how trauma affects mental health, but also what to do about it. And so from there, I then decided to move to London to continue my studies and, and research. So can I also lay out some key terms? So how do humans process traumatic events? Or what's the relationship for you and the difference between mental health and a trauma? Maybe that's something also which is interesting to understand. So um, I, I guess we, we, we often talk about trauma. And uh, I, I suppose what, what's... Uh, Important to, to say, perhaps, at this point is that medically or uh, in, uh, in research, we give that term trauma quite a, a specific definition. So we think about trauma as an event that involves uh, danger of death, injury or sexual violation. And, and so then experience that are traumatic. So just based on that definition I gave you are more likely to be uh, processed poorly by our memory system. So with any memory, um, if we think about our past and we try to remember it, we can choose to remember what happened to us or not. Whereas with traumas, the memories may come up in our consciousness whether we want it or not. And that, of course, can be very distressing for people, can affect the way we think um, about the world, about others, even about ourselves, and also the biological stress mediators that are triggered by those memories can even influence the way the brain works. So th this might give us some advantage, for example, if the threat is ongoing, having these memories really reminds us of what the threats are and what we should do differently, perhaps next time around we meet some of those threats. But generally, of course, it is unhelpful, it becomes unhelpful, and it leads to poor mental health. 
Melissa, you've, you've mentioned several traumatic events in your life and, um, of course, also how you've overcame these and how you've tried. I've just, I'm just wondering how you can re re resurrect yourself when you're reliving the same thing every day in and out and sit at your home. So w how do you deal with this if you're, if you're stuck in this and you're reliving it day in and day out that you don't fall into this trap of a traumatic experience or event, basically? For me, this comes back to really somatic body work, understanding how to feel those feelings in your body without adding more to the story. And I think what most of us do when we think of processing some traumatic event, it's going deeper into it, asking why. And while that might be helpful to some degree, it's also a place that a lot of people get stuck in, where they start to focus so much on what went wrong in their life or what's being taken from them that that becomes their story. And when you have a belief about yourself or about the world, that is what drives your behavior. It's these beliefs that we carry. And so if you already believe that, you know, you're not worthy or that it, things can just happen to you and you have no control over it at all, which is true, but what does that mean for you? How are you going to turn that around and take responsibility for where you go forward? And so for me, that really involves just feeling it, just spending time to sit with my pain, as scary as that might be, which is what I avoided my entire teens and 20s, and have that courage. And so that looks like just asking yourself, where am I feeling this in my body? What are these sensations like? Is it a tightness in your chest? Is it a heaviness in your eye sockets when you're thinking about this? And just sit with it. Don't say why the whole time. Don't go back and, and relive that moment over and over again. Just feel it and see what happens. And there's been more and more uh, science that's showing that feeling this is allowing it to move through our bodies instead of storing it in our bodies. Sarah, on, the, on this subject, what Melissa also just mentioned, the reliving the same thing every day. How should employers mediate over working during this time? And then, and, and because the competition in the workplace is brutal and particularly within the financial center. So how do they deal with this? I think it comes down to flexibility again, flexibility in the approach and how employees can use their time. So simple things, you know, avoiding Zoom fatigue. If you don't need meetings, don't put meetings in. Give people the time in a day to take a break, have a fixed end of the day. Um, but I really think it's giving that ownership back to the employee <laughs> to be able to see what works for them because everyone's situation is different, whether they have children, whether they're living alone, whatever it might be. So I really think it comes down to that flexibility. Yeah, no, absolutely. Just recently read about an, um, an, a case of young analysts in the financial industry who've spoken out about the amount of work and pressure they, they face in sacrificing their mental health to reach their professional goals. Can we avoid any traumatic working from home environment during a pandemic when, for example, younger graduates and analysts, younger generation might feel more pressure to overachieve and actually have no escape? Yeah, I think it's it comes down to, I think, there the support you're offering. So as a manager to have regular touch-ins with those employees, because they haven't had that same structure and time in an organization to either know its culture or know the work pattern. So I think it's really important to be in regular contact, but equally for those younger employees to speak out and say how they're feeling, what they're experiencing, what they need. Do they need more touch points with their manager? Do they actually need to come to the office sometimes if they can and have that face-to-face -face interaction? But again, I think it's a give and take between the employer and the employee in that, but it's very much about communication. Since the 1990s, 
Hundreds of children and teenagers in Sweden have fallen into unconscious coma-like states. These sleeping beauties, as author Susanne O'Sullivan refers to them, in her recent book on mysterious illnesses, are often children of asylum seekers who have witnessed violence against their family and had refugee applications rejected. While their bodies stay strong and healthy, hair shiny and long, their eyes remain closed for months, if not years. Resignation syndrome, as they've now officially called it, is believed to be an expression of trauma. Sarah, you've just been appointed Head of Diversity and Inclusion at PICT Asset Management. But since I've known you, you've always been openly um, addressed important issues like mental health and equal representation. Where does your interest in helping others and charities and NGOs come from? And, and why do you actually choose a corporate setting to pursue all of that, Sarah? I think for me, it very much has to do with my upbringing. So as some people do know, I grew up in Pakistan and the disparity there between society and the poor is extreme. So you live it very much day to day and you equally see how little it takes to make a difference in someone's life. So I think that's definitely stayed with me my whole life, whether it was living in North America or now here in the UK. So I don't think it takes much to change somebody's life in, in a very small way. And so where I can, I like to do that. I think in the corporate setting, I think I was fortunate. I didn't pursue uh, kind of a D&I career. It just happened. And, and I'm very thankful for it because it gives me the opportunity to give back or help an organization to kind of realize where it can give back to the community. What do you think? So while the government and public services, they're all key providers for mental health issues. Um, how do you think can companies create a safe space to talk about these issues? And, and do you have any specific examples of programs or companies who have lobbied this and that you really like as a support also for our listeners and others? Yeah, I think, Bella, two come to mind. One is PwC. They set up a say, uh, online community for their employees during COVID. I mean, that's a company of over 200,000 people. So it gave a safe space. It was not monitored by HR or the company, but it was just allowing people to discuss openly what stresses they were feeling because of COVID in the workplace or even at home. So that was a great example. And I think the second is Microsoft. I think as much as employers need to create a safe space in the workplace and be that at home now, they need to be able to give people the time. And Microsoft gave its employees up to 12 weeks off paid leave to be able to take care of their kids who were out of school because of school closures and, and being home. So and I think when we talk back to kind of what Andrea had mentioned around childhood trauma and the trauma and the pandemic, if employers can facilitate that by giving parents time to spend with those children, so you're not just fitting them in in your day. I think that's incredible. So those are two that definitely I admire. I, I think it's great what they've done. Yeah, no, they definitely stand out. I've read about this well. And Melissa, from your side, and you've probably also interviewed people on Mind Love on your podcast about that. Would you have any advice on how companies could incorporate mindfulness into their structures? One thing I find really important is doing this in a way where you're putting the personal responsibility on the person. I think some of the programs that end up coming out are another way where it's like, oh, here's what's going to come and save you when that's not really what the case ever is. You have to make that choice for yourself. 
And so I think it's really proactive when companies are open to somebody saying, hey, I need a mental health day because I need to go do something for myself. Or I worked at a company that had a meditation room. And so even if you've never meditated before, you've got this spot to go meditate and maybe that's what draws you in to go find that moment of stillness whether you're meditating or not, maybe you're just going and you were going to cry at your desk and instead you take a moment in this little private room. And Andrea, from your side, have you seen increase in the number of charities and NGOs actually dealing and helping with mental health issues during the pandemic? And if so, are there any you would like to highlight? Yeah, I think it's, so it has been a tremendously difficult time for NGOs and, uh, and charities uh, because, of course, they, they were not able to hold meetings and uh, fundraising events. But I, I see many of them really raising to, to the challenge. And uh, if you ask, you know, what we have done and what I can tell you about is that I, I'm really proud of the work we've done, for example, with the Mosley Charity to develop very quickly within a month and a half from the beginning of the pandemic here in the UK, uh, some very practical resources with animations um, that were then narrated by sort of famous parents that were really very well taken by lots of parents. Um, and uh, in fact, they have been translated to German and taken up and adapted in Australia and now in, in few other countries. So you've, you've worked with many organizations and uh, who treat mental health care throughout your career. And Could you tell us a little bit more about your Keep Cool initiative for young people who are currently dealing with intense feelings and uh, uh, and emotions? Sure, sure. And so this is our latest project and really is an ongoing strategy. And uh, what, what we want to do with the Keep Cool project is a series of educational videos designed to help young people to learn about and cope with uh, strong emotions. And it has been created by young people for young people, and it's backed by science. So that, that's how we like to think about. And we feel that the work is important as it is challenging. So on the one hand, we know that emotional disorders are the most common disorder overall, have increased during the uh, last two decades, not just the pandemic, and affect adolescents uh, disproportionately compared to children, for example, or even adults in many ways. On the other hand, the creation and the delivery of this type of psychoeducational materials for adolescents is difficult because we have to be responsive and uh, careful with regard to the cooler developmental needs of this group, of this age group. And so we have thought about a number of ways to, to do that. And uh, we, we hope that, uh, you know, they will help us to deliver this in the best way possible. So on the one hand, we have maximized engagement. So we focus on fundamental emotions, as I was saying before, like um, anxiety, sadness, and anger, rather than psychiatric disorders, because these are experiences we all have at some point. And therefore, in this way, we want to inform as many young people as possible and fight stigma around mental health. We want to speak to young people, so we need to learn the language. And to do that, what we have done is... Uh, with Keep Cool, building a platform for young people to share their experiences effectively. So we're learning what emotions feel like for young people, when they experience them, and importantly, how do they deal with, with them? And, and I think there is a lot of wisdom in, in this lived experience and we want to learn from it. 
we then want to reach the young people and meet them where they are. And therefore, we are we have invested um, a lot on social media to connect with them quickly and, and share ideas. Yeah, surely the best way to connect with them. So now that we are basically wrapping up our conversation, what's your parting advice in a few sentences to help our audience to get through it, whatever is ahead of us in 2021 now? Just a few sentences from all of you. Sarah, do you want to start? Um, I think mine would be communicate. I think share how you're feeling and don't be afraid to speak up, whether that's kind of to your employer, to your family. But I think get the support you need. If you need help, get the support you need and take the time for yourself. Melissa? I touched on something earlier that would be my advice going forward is using your limitations as guideposts, steering you in a new direction, a higher direction. And so there have been plenty of things that have been taken away from us or that we don't have access to anymore. So ask yourself, what do you need? Is that the physical activity? Is that going outside? Is that emotional connection? And how can I find that in this with the limitations that we have right now? And it's really important to give that to yourself and to be proactive in creating the new habits around that. I really agree with that. And uh, to find stimuli, right? We, we, we have to, we have to find ways of uh, still being stimulated and uh, continue having some fun as well. And my, my addition to that is that we also need to be kind to ourselves and recognize that this really, you know, probably the, the, the top uh, word of the, of the year is unprecedented, right? And it is an unprecedented time and we're all sort of learning how to cope with it. And, you know, sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't, but it's, it's uh, really sticking with the process and, uh, you know, just, just accepting that sometimes things are not going to be perfect that uh, will help, I think. This week's guests on Founding Conversation were Melissa Monte, Andrea Danese, and Sarah Sheik, moderated by Isabel von Ribbentrop. This series is brought to you by the Bicta Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How-To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrija Razbetayev, and Vasily Christodoulou, with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.